Hello and welcome to episode 77 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This is Ben Olson in Washington, D.C. With me is Nathan Fox in... I'm back in Los Angeles, Marina Del Rey. It's fucking, it's like 35 degrees warmer here than it was in Toronto. I went for a long walk this morning. It's, uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be back in Southern California. Yeah, well, 35 degrees warmer. How warm is it? Uh, it is like, yeah, it's like 65 degrees. Wow. Okay. Cool. Anything exciting other than your walk since you've been home? No, I just got in yesterday, so I'm just kind of getting my new uh, world headquarters set up here in Los Angeles. <laughs> your, your world headquarters. That's what I'm calling it, yeah. You don't have a class right now, right? Your classes start in January or no? Correct. Yeah, I have classes starting in Los Angeles and San Francisco in like the 10th of January. Okay, yeah. Well... I, my class just started uh, for the February LSAT on Monday, and so that's that's been pretty fun. Uh, we just j- jumped right in to the games. so Cool. Yeah. I've never worked in December, really, but it seems like you, you are able to fill your class. I've never even tried, actually. I just figured, ah, holidays, nobody wants to do LSAT stuff. I guess that's dumb. Well, uh, we definitely take a break for you know, the the weeks around Christmas and New Year's. But I think there's just a lot of demand in D.C., you know. There's a lot yeah, of people yeah. who want to go to go to law school even if they don't plan on practicing just because it's sort of a, a indicator on the hill. So, Cool. Hey, uh, today we got a lot of uh, exciting stuff. We have a letter from your – well, the dean from your alma mater, which I'm excited to, to hear – you read. Uh, we also have reports, of course, from the December 2016 LSAT, and a lot of those reports are not surprising. And I hope that we can uh, cover another question, a logical reasoning question from the June 2007 LSAT at the end. And yeah, do you have anything else you want to add to that list? I think we have a couple, one other email that we can get to, too, but... Uh... Yeah, you want to start with this letter from uh, UC Hastings? Yeah, I saw this, and I just uh, couldn't stop myself from reading it. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna skim it. Um, it's a very long letter from uh, David Fagman, who is the acting dean of the law school, and it says, uh, "Dear UC Hastings community, I write with profoundly disappointing news." Late on Friday, I received a letter from the California State Bar that reported that UC Hastings' July 2016 first-time pass rate was 51%. This is a horrific result. He goes on to say how last year, when he took over as acting dean, he stated that his first priority would be bar passage, uh, because in 2014 and 2015, Hastings fell below 70%. And in 2015, it was slightly below the state average for ABA accredited schools, which is unbelievable. Yeah. He said it was, he's writing now, he's recapping what happened, you know, back in 2015 when he took over. He said it was unacceptable. Well, then this year we fell 11 points below the state average. I, I thought it was interesting that this happened because it sort of proves what, I think we've been talking about for some time, and that is that the bar passage rates 
are really determined by who you admit, not necessarily by what you do after they are admitted. Granted, I'm sure you can have some effect, but when he vowed to fix that, the people who are taking the bar in 2016, or I guess, yeah, 2016, were already admitted (laughs) and destined to bring that down, right? Yeah, which, you know, never in this, how many words is this? I didn't do a word count, but this is thousand words it's a lengthy email yeah which which uh david fagman is uh kind of known for in this lengthy email he talks about all the changes that he made you know a retreat with the faculty uh reorganized several departments that supplement the core academic program you know academic support bar passage support a couple other things they're all consolidated under some different management something or other And like pretending as if the law school actually does anything to prepare you for the bar. I mean, it's this has nothing to do with what kind of education you're getting at Hastings. This has everything to do with you're admitting people who you shouldn't be admitting or you're admitting people who are going to not pass the bar. I mean, I've heard of people getting into Hastings recently. You know, their their LSAT numbers, that's all public. That's fallen dramatically. But nope, that was never mentioned anywhere in this email. Yeah. You know, going forward, I can attest that we as an institution are fully committed to our students' professional success. That begins with a passing score on the bar exam. I'm personally and professionally embarrassed by our bar performance. I apologize to our graduates on behalf of myself and the institution. I promise to do everything within my power to support blah, 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 blah. (laughs) You know, then, and by the way, you know, Oh, talking about faculty mentor program and on-campus study and all this stuff. Okay, great. Or you could raise your admission standards. Mm -hmm. Then he goes on to say, as an aside, and this is a a long-ass aside, (laughs) by the way. But as an aside, let me express my utter incredulity with the conduct of the Committee of Bar Examiners of the State Bar of California. The pass rate for first-time takers of ABA-accredited California law schools was 62%. Again, Hastings was way below that at 50%. In comparison, New York's bar pass rate was 83%. This is the best part right here. The California bar is effectively saying that 38% of graduates from ABA-accredited law schools are not qualified to practice law. I read that and I was like, yup. (laughs) And he says, this is outrageous and constitutes unconscionable conduct on the part of a trade association that masquerades as a state agency. Whoa. <laughs> However shameful the state bar's conduct, it does not relieve us of our obligation to fully prepare our students to pass the bar exam. The state average was indefensibly low, yet our rate was 11 points below the state average for accredited schools. Blah, blah, blah. We need to continue to take bold action to improve our graduates' outcomes. Uh, but it doesn't say anything. He closes with a an inspirational quote from Vince Lombardi and another inspirational quote from Abraham Lincoln. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> yeah. You can stand yeah. assured that only five people read this email. And... Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. So wait, let's go back to this thirty-eight uh, percent. This is great. So oh, that's awesome. In essence, what has happened here? People realized that legal education was overpriced, in part because of the recession. They stopped going to law school. Law schools lowered the standards for admitting applicants, 
And lo and behold, the number of people now graduating from law school who are as qualified as they were several years ago has dramatically dropped. And that is reflected in the bar results. And the bar is saying, hey, law schools, you're producing less qualified applicants. And that's why fewer of them, fewer of them are able to go forward, go yeah. forth and practice law. Yeah. And he's blaming it on them as if yeah. they need to lower the standards. To be fair, the state bar could be super corrupt as well, right? Oh, sure. There's a financial interest to keep lawyers out of the right. system, right? He's saying, well, and it's actually, but I mean, that's actually good for people who are already admitted to the bar, that's right? right? So, and that's like for alums, alums of UC Hastings are actually, it's, it's like, if you're an alum, you're already on the side of both uh, both what we've been saying and what the bar is saying, which is just, hey, I'm an alum. I'm having a hard time finding a job. Why are we minting so many new lawyers? And so the bar, the state bar in California, it seems like, has said, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, we're certainly not going to make the test easier so that these lower qualified people can pass it. Mm-hmm. And they could very well be like, oh, actually, you know what? We need to make it harder because it's tough to get jobs right now. And yeah. we need to make it so that lawyers can actually get jobs when they pass the bar. We need to make sure they can actually get a job. So let's make the bar even tougher and that'll keep people out. So that that totally could be happening. And I would even grant that it probably is happening. I will see. I don't know that the bar has gotten harder. My guess is I these no people idea. are just sitting at their desks and they're just recreating the same bar that they've been creating for a long time yeah it's you know it could be a combination of both of those things but the the one sure answer here if Mm -hmm. you're uc hastings or if you're any law school and you're worried about your bar passage rate stop admitting people that you know aren't going to pass the bar yeah and it's just obvious and it's like i don't know it seems to me like these schools just want license to rip off students and now it's, a, oh, we're going to point a finger at the bar and say, well, it's the bar exam. It's the bar's fault. It's not our fault. Yeah. You know, we we do an excellent job of preparing people for to be lawyers. And <laughs> and then they, and you know, admit all these people, rack up millions and millions of dollars worth of tuition. And then, oh, whoops, sorry. Oh, you didn't pass the bar. Yeah, that's the, that's the bar's fault. You know, it is interesting that the New York bar's pass rate is 83%. I wonder if uh, the number of, like, if you look at the law schools in New York, are do they ha- are they, on average, higher ranked than the, the law schools in California? I wonder, I mean, I know that the California bar is notoriously hard, but, you know, it's, it's apparently the bar passage rate has dropped. So unless they did change, unless they did make it more difficult, I wonder why New York is doing uh, so well or hasn't dropped. Unless it did drop. Maybe 83 is a drop, but I doubt that. That sounds like a pretty decent uh, passage rate. Yeah, I I don't know anything about it. I mean, I probably shouldn't be popping off so much about this because I I don't really know about the differences between the two bars. (laughs) It's really hard not to pop off when someone says utter incredulity or, you know, constitutes unconscionable conduct or shameful. I mean, you really have to say, hold on. (laughs) (laughs) Where's your evidence? It masquerades as a state agency. Oh, I know. I'm kind of amazed that he sent this out into the into the public. I mean, it's I don't 
I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Anyway, there's a letter from the acting dean of UC Hastings about how the bar passage rate there is now 51%, which is 11 points below the state average. That's my alma mater, UC Hastings. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Should we move on? Yeah, we have. Yeah, so we have some more letters from uh, listeners. Do you want to tackle this one as well? Um, I can read, sure. Uh, <laughs> a letter from Ari. I'm going to say Ari, although it could be Ari, but because there's a Y in there. But anyway, mm-hmm. letter from Ari. Three questions, two more general and one more specific. Okay, the first question is basically, he heard our earlier podcast where, or podcasts where we were talking about reading the question stem first versus reading the stimulus first. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, we didn't get the point across because he's saying, why do we read the stimulus first? Oh. Yeah. Apparently, apparently he didn't catch that. I don't want to spend too much time on this because I feel like we've talked about it on a, a million other episodes, but I'll just give my one reason why I'm going to read the stimulus first. And that's basically that if I understand the stimulus, I already am like three quarters of the way to ask uh, to answering any question. And I do not feel that knowing what type of question I'm dealing with helps me when I'm reading the stimulus. In fact, I think it hurts me when I'm reading the stimulus because I get so caught up in strengthening or weakening or finding the main point or blah, 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 instead of just understanding what they're saying. So that's why I read the stimulus first. Yeah. uh, To build on that point, uh, I was talking to someone yesterday who said, well, I read the stimulus first, or we're talking about the question here. I read the question first so that I have a goal or I know what I'm looking for as I go into the passage. And... I was telling them that a lot of times, well, exactly what you're saying, it it makes you too narrowly focused on some end as opposed to just understanding what the sentences are saying and what's messed up about them, if anything. We were talking specifically about different question types, and I said, hey, look, sometimes it doesn't happen very often, but sometimes I'll read a passage and I'll feel like, I've just read a bunch of facts. So it'll be like fact one, fact two, fact three, and then it will say something along the lines of which one of the following, if true, most strengthens the argument. And my thought, I'm like, wait, argument? I thought I just felt like the person was just telling me information. So clearly there was a conclusion and I missed it. Although that doesn't happen very often, when when I have that realization, I know that I missed something and I go back and I say, okay, well, which one of these claims could be the conclusion and which one seems to be supported by the other sentences. Whereas if you read the question first and you know that there's a conclusion in there and you read through the argument, you might not realize that your understanding of the passage is like you have this feeling that you're understanding uh, what the conclusion is or what's going on because you've you've been told there's a conclusion, but you don't actually understand it. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is when I read the passage and the question itself kind of reveals to me that I might have missed something, it clues me into what I don't know, and that actually makes it very likely that I will find it. 
Whereas I think some people feel like they understand the passage, but they don't really. And they're partly because hindsight is twenty twenty. They knew there was a conclusion, so they maybe they don't even find it, but they think they did because they know it's there or something. I, in any case, I, I think that was kind of a convoluted explanation. But the idea is that when you just sit down and read it and the question stem reveals that, hey, maybe you might have missed something, you're very sensitive to that, and I'm much better at finding exactly what it is that I might have missed. That doesn't happen very often. In most cases, like you said, you're ready to go into the answers regardless of what the question is. But um, I think that can help me recognize problems before I even get into the answers. Yeah, I I think that's a sensible position. I mean, right, because half the time I know what question they're going to ask before I even get to the part that asks the question, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, when they give me a whole big set of facts, it's almost always a must-be-true question. When they give me a puzzling situation, it's almost always an explanation question or a paradox question. Yep. They will give me an argument that has a big flaw in it, like I catch that it confused a sufficient condition for a necessary condition, or I catch that it did a correlation to causation flaw. Yeah. And that almost always turns out to be a flaw question. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about doing the test on like a higher plane, I think, where I'm the boss of the test and I'm not looking for shortcuts. I'm just going to read that passage. I'm really going to understand it deeply. And once I have that deep understanding, then, yeah, they ask me whatever question they want to ask me, and I've already got it. But I like your point of, yeah, once in a while, I'll read the question part, and the question will say, which one of the following, if inferred, allows the conclusion to be properly drawn? And I'm like, oh, wait, what? Oh, I I thought the argument was solid. Yeah. Oh, okay. Now I better go, hmm, what did I miss? And then I'll get a little finer, I guess, in the details, and I'll go, oh, I see. Here's the disconnect. I get it. Okay, got it. Yeah, it's like that That surprise is actually helpful because most people right. who are getting these questions wrong think they understand the passage, but they don't. Yeah. I think you're more – maybe maybe that's what I'm getting around to is that I'm just more engaged if I read the, the, the passage first mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Inst- instead of, you know, trying to just take this shortcut of like, oh, okay, it's a sufficient assumption question. All I got to do is just skim through, ah, sufficient, you know, it, and then I don't really understand what they're saying. Yeah, and I, I think problems can crop up anywhere. So if you're critically reading every sentence and you're like, hmm, what do I think about that? How do I think this relates to the next sentence and so on? Then you can be sensitive to random flaws or whatever that they may test in the answers. Whereas someone who has a very narrow focus like, oh, well, sufficient assumption is just got to connect the premise to the conclusion. Yeah, that does happen a lot of times, but it doesn't happen every time. And lo and behold, you might be surprised when you didn't find the actual jump that they're testing you on. So, Cool. Next question here says, what do you guys think of LSAT plateaus? I spent about three months studying for the most recent test. I score, uh, started at 151 cold and then scored 165 on my two highest practice, practice tests. On my last five practice tests, I scored 162 and 163 every single time. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts were on LSAT plateaus and how we can work to get past these. Well, I think that when people are plateauing, they they don't know something. (laughs) There's something that they don't know, or there's something that they're not doing, and 
in tutoring, I'm just going over questions that they missed and saying, hey, what did you think about this argument? Just what we were just talking about. What did you think about this argument? What do you think about this argument now before we even talk about the answer choices? And there's little things that they're not picking up on. And so once they start seeing those things, I think they start getting more questions right. Yeah, right. You are missing questions. Missed questions indicate there's something you don't understand. I can't tell you what you don't understand. You have to go through your mistakes and you have to figure those mistakes out. Why are you making those mistakes? What kinds of questions are you missing? How are you missing them? Do you understand when you go back and review them? I don't know. Other, it's not... I don't know. I kind of get I get slightly annoyed by the, the whole concept of plateaus mm-hmm. because I just don't even think it's a thing. Yeah. You know, it's like looking at data and now you're going to see, see a trend or whatever. Oh, my five, last five tests were 162, 163. That means I have plateaued. Well, no, not really. I mean, you could still be a 163 plus or minus four and you still score 162, 163 on five tests in a row. Yeah. I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure there is such a thing. I, I also think that people do at a certain point after significant prep level off at a certain level and it can become very, very difficult to score any higher than that because, you know, at a certain point you're going to be kind of approaching your true potential. And I don't know who's who, but I do know that not everyone is capable of scoring 175. Yeah. And so, you know, Ari started at 151. That's a pretty good starting score. Uh, Has scored as high as 165, which is a strong score. And is in the 160s pretty consistently. That's great. You absolutely could keep studying to get a higher score. I've seen people, you know, improve from 151 to 171. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can make it. But if you've been studying for three months, depending how many tests you've done and, you know, have you worked at it diligently every day for those three months, there, there does come a point where you have to just say, okay, I've given it a very good effort and I've now reached this new higher level and that's my level yeah i mean even then though i'd be very skeptical of quote true potential you know i think that there definitely has got to be a limit (laughs) at some point but i think most people sell themselves short like they again they just don't know something and then they say oh well i do know it but i just can't do it fast enough well you can't do it fast enough Maybe because you don't know the three ways of answering this question, you only right. know one way, which is why you can answer it, but it took you three minutes instead of one and a half. So yeah. I guess I always feel like <clears throat> no matter who comes to me, even if they're scoring in the, the low 170s, I feel like there's something we can find. It's like, well, what are you doing here? What are you doing there? Why, why did you spend so much time on this question? Well, I was debating these two answers, Um, Did you look back at the passage? So sometimes it's about knowledge and sometimes it's about what you decide to do in that moment when you're stuck on the test. You know, do you reread the sentence? Do you try to look at the answers again or start comparing them word by word? Or do you just sort of, I don't know, give up and, you know, go on to the next question? There's a lot of things that you can do differently that have different outcomes. Yeah. So no matter who you are, no matter what your level, continue doing timed practice sections and reviewing your mistakes. 
And, you know, don't just look at the answer key and try to convince yourself why the right answer is D. Instead, dig deeply into those mistakes and think about why are you making them? Is it the type of question? Did you not understand the argument? Was there something in the wrong answer that attracted you? Is there something in the right answer that you shied away from for some reason? And uh, yeah, think about maybe developing a second and third and fourth different way of thinking about these questions. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I'm not trying to be discouraging. I'm not saying, oh, I'll give up. You're a one, you know, <laughs> you, you made it to 163, be happy and just quit. I'm definitely not saying that. But I am saying that, you know, I, I think people sometimes have a, a little bit of an unreasonable expectation that they're going to make it to 175. Yes. And, yes. Uh, you know, I just, sure, keep keep learning from your mistakes, keep grinding it out. But at some point you have to decide, okay, I'm going to take the next step with yeah. my life. Maybe it's the case that, yeah, sure, you could get there eventually, but it's going to take so much work that, hey, you can get into a school you want to go to, you've got a good score, go for it. This is just yeah. a means to an end. It's not the end itself. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's not true that nothing is impossible. Things are impossible. Yep. It's yep. not possible for me to play in the NBA. It's not yep. going to happen. You know, I can get better at basketball, but I'm not going to be I'm not playing in the NBA. It doesn't matter how long I practice. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I mean, you should, I, I'm, a, I'm a big advocate of people doing things that they're good at. And, you know, if you, if you start with the LSAT and you struggle a little bit, but you practice it a little bit and it starts to make sense, it starts to click and you start to make improvements, then awesome. That's great. And as long as you can maintain motivation to keep practicing, cool, do it, you know, it, you're improving, great. But at a certain point when you feel like you're banging your head against the wall and you have, you feel like you've given it, you know, a pretty good effort. I'm talking about three months of effort and you've got some good resources, you've got people helping you, books, class, whatever, and you get to a point where it's just, you're not making any more progress well, then, yeah, you either have to do something significantly different with the way you're prepping or you have to decide, hey, this is my ability on this test. And yeah. or it's because it's at least your ability today. Yeah. And then you have to decide whether you want to you know, continue to pour time and energy into that or just move on. I don't know. Yeah. The reason I say I agree with you completely that there is some sort of end point. There is some yeah. sort of true potential. The reason I'm so skeptical of most people who claim that they have sort of reached that is that a lot of times people are saying this after they've been preparing, you know, preparing for four weeks. They're like, hey, I took a first test and I, my score went up five points to the next test and then it went up a couple points and then it really hasn't gone up since then. I, I think it you know, I'm getting really nervous. I don't think I can yeah. go up anymore. And it's sort of like, you've only taken four tests. I know. My last two tests were the exact same score. I've hit a plateau. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's like not understanding randomness at all, not mm -hmm. understanding data at all. Mm -hmm. And it's also just way too short-sighted. And uh, yeah, maybe not. That's also maybe just not sort of grasping how hard your competitors work on this thing. Yeah. That like many, many of your competitors would feel like they had not fully prepared if they hadn't taken 30 or 40 practice tests. Yeah. And you're saying, you know, you're, you've plateaued and you're going to give up after four. Well, 
okay, fine. I'm, I'm all in favor of everybody giving up. You know, give up whenever you want. That's totally fine. Because <laughs> you shouldn't be doing this unless you like can't sleep at night unless you're going to become a lawyer. Yeah. And if you can't sleep at night, then you'll keep working at it and you'll get better. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Let's move on to this next question. Well, I think we've already covered it. It's, you know, how, it wants to know, how can I raise my score over the next nine and a half weeks? Give some information about each different section, but I think I go back to my, I go back to my same thing, which is you need to do timed sections, review your mistakes. If you can't figure them out a hundred percent, if you can't figure them out by yourself, then you need to make a list and either bring them to a study partner or a tutor or something like that. Yeah, I would. I caution. He says, I'm not opposed to tutoring if I can find something affordable. Um, I would be careful about that just because I feel like you could probably get as much value out of a free study partner as you could out of a, you know, $30 an hour LSAT tutor. For sure. They're just telling you what worked for them in, <laughs> in a mo- you know for some questions and they don't necessarily all always understand what's best for most people. Yeah. I think you'd, you'd be better off like hooking up with, you know, somebody who's taking my class or somebody who's taking your class, Ben and mm-hmm. finding I've, I've done that sometimes like connected people. We should have like a thinking LSAT study group hmm. so that, you know, listeners could hook up with each other and because I think the probably our listeners are going to be way better able to help each other with the test than like the random $30 an hour LSAT tutor who's out there. Yeah. If anybody has any ideas on how to head that up, we would help at thinkinglsat.com or post on the, the website at thinkinglsat.com. And I'm sure we could start a discussion thread there where people could uh, figure out how to hook up. Um, I don't know, maybe we could even use Facebook or something like that. But somebody else do it because we're busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Ari ends with a, a nice thank you. So thanks for listening, yeah. Ari. We appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Ari. Okay. Um, I got a kind of a funny note from one of my students who is in Mexico City. Hmm. And... Did you see this picture? It's kind yeah, of I'm looking at this picture right now. <laughs> yeah, that's just the front door to the to the testing center. Wow, um, looks like a restaurant. <laughs> it does look like well, it's a, it looks like a maybe a restaurant right next door. Yeah, right next door. Yeah. And then this door goes. I don't know if it was like above the restaurant or what, but it just says. Uh, so it was like an apartment that was transformed into an English learning center. The proctors were nice and helpful, but the bathroom smelled like a dead fish. Um, oh, he, oh, he says he wasn't sure if you could bring your cell phone into the testing center or not, um, which I don't know. He already took the test. So I guess that ship has already sailed. <laughs> and, I'm, and then he says, uh, oh, and the tables were sticky. LOL. <laughs> anyway, we'll post this picture to uh, thinkinglsat.com if you want to see what it's like to take the test in mexico city wow all right so then we have a letter from calvin yeah Uh uh-huh so calvin says hey guys 
I'm sure you're getting flooded with emails, but I thought I'd contribute my impression of the test. Oh, so this is December, December test feedback as well. Yep. I had LR, RC, LR, LG, LR. So this is a very common format for saying what sections you got in what order. People always report that, and I always go, I don't give a shit. <laughs> yeah. Now this actually this doesn't it doesn't matter, but Cobham got a little bit lucky here. His LRs were spaced. They are all separate. Uh, Is that lucky? Yeah, sometimes people get all three LRs back to back, and they find it sort of draining. I guess if they suck at LR. Yeah, if you don't like LR, although I do think there is. I would like I would like my games to come somewhere in there. Uh, when games is last, and you have no games experimental, so you have like LR reading comp, LR LR games. This is a lot of reading. I kind of I like how little I have to think with the games. It's kind of a mental break. So, yeah, I can see that. I guess games in the middle kind of makes sense. But it, it's, you know, for most people, four out of five sections on the day are going to be LR or RC, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So it's you're going to one way or the other. You're going to be doing a whole shit ton of reading, even yep. if games is section three, which is the best possible outcome. That still means you're doing section one and two back to back and section four and five back to back mm-hmm. of some pretty dense stuff. By the way, you're going to be a lawyer and you're going to go to law school. So get used to it. <laughs> Thank you. So <laughs> my mind was kind of fried at the end, but I thought I gave myself uh, a good chance. I'm very bad at predicting how I did. That's not surprising. Almost no one is very good at that. Although RC was pretty easy as well. Definitely got the test day adrenaline focus boost. You know, a lot of people have said that the reading comp on this test was easier. At least that's what I've heard. Uh, A number of people saying that they could finish it when they couldn't finish reading comp before. So I guess this uh, reading comp was a little bit easier than what's happened in the past. Yeah, I've heard top to bottom the test was easy. I mean, you still get... Because every single test, I get a couple people who call me saying that they melted down and freaked out and had a problem and thinking about canceling their score, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But uh, I only got a couple of those this time around, and I got more than usual people saying, hey, the games were easy, the whole thing was easy, I thought it went really well. So I'm saying this this one was uh, pretty gettable. Mm Mm-hmm. So he goes on and says the games were interesting. First two were super easy. I had trouble with the third, so I skipped it and went on to the fourth about factories, trading, buildings. It was unconventional, but going off of Nathan's insistence that those games are often easy, I set up an initial diagram, and it was by far the quickest and easiest. That warmed my heart right there. I love that. (laughs) I I love it when somebody says, oh, yeah, it was kind of weird and funny, but I just followed the rules and I realized that it was easy. Yeah, great. Awesome. Cool. So then he says, I went back to the third game, which was a hybrid game. I ended up doing well when I ignored the ordering and focused on constraining variables. In hindsight, it was an easy games section. Uh, Yeah, so I think that... Of the two last games, the third one is the one I've heard the most uh, concern about. Uh, sounds like it went well for Calvin, which is great. And um, hopefully yeah. people didn't get too sucked into the third game and not have a chance to get to the fourth game. Sounds like Calvin did a nice little maneuver there. Of um, there, was, there was ordering and there was also, I don't know, I guess it was ordering and grouping in some way. Mm-hmm. 
And it sounds like Calvin was successful by just ignoring for a minute the ordering dimension and think about the groups. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because a lot of times, uh, if you're grouping and ordering, or if you're like, I can think of one game for sure where you were grouping twice, like sort of grouping on two different dimensions at once. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty complicated if you tried to do it all at once, but if you just focused on one of the grouping dimensions first, you mm-hmm. know, figure out the one of the sets of groups first and then move on to the other groups, then it became a lot easier. Yeah. So that's great. Sounds like Calvin did a lot of practice and had, you know, pretty good experience going into the test and then kept his wits about him. So that's awesome. Yeah. So he closes his fingers crossed for early January. Likewise, our fingers are crossed for you, Calvin. Uh, when the scores come out, thanks again for everything. The tips on the test day mindset and staying calm really helped. So, cool. Awesome. That's good news. Yeah. Yeah. yeah thanks, Calvin. He's. Had, I think we've read a couple of different letters from Calvin on the show before. So. Oh really? He's a, Oops. Yeah. Friend yeah. of the show, consistent uh, contributor. Sorry, Calvin. I didn't. Rem- recognize your name nothing personal uh all right so let's go to the june 2007 lsat let's do that are in section three and let's see what question are we on 12 maybe yep because we were talking about the mercury and the seabirds with graham last time okay cool so it says Novel X and Novel Y are both semi-autobiographical novels and contain many very similar themes and situations, which might lead one to suspect plagiarism on the part of one of the authors. Not necessarily. Yeah, I mean, right away I'd be like, uh. <laughs> people, people might live similar lives. Yeah, no, I agree. No, I mean, if uh, if... Mickey Mantle wrote an autobiography, semi-autobiographical novel about baseball, and also Roger Maris wrote a semi-autobiographical novel about baseball. I don't know. There would be very similar themes and situations, but that wouldn't necessarily mean that they had plagiarized each other, right? Yeah, for sure. They could be two people coming from similar backgrounds and situations or whatever, and so of course there'll be similar themes. Yeah. Okay. Of course, if this person had said the opposite, we'd be arguing in the other direction. Yeah, but right. <laughs> uh, so then the next sentence is, however, hmm, maybe this person agrees with us. However, it is more likely that the similarity of themes and situations in the two novels is merely coincidental. Okay, we're sympathetic to that, obviously, yeah. since both authors are from very similar backgrounds and have led similar oh. lives. Nice. That's exactly what you were saying. And uh, so I think we're we're sympathetic, sympathetic to this argument. But at the same time, since this argument has staked out the position that it is more likely that these things are merely coincidental, I might be ready to say, oh, but maybe they're not. (laughs) Yeah, you want to you always want to try to think about the other side of the argument. So, yeah, you'd ask questions like, oh, really? Um, Yeah. Tell me about these guys. Where are they Mm -hmm. from? What did they do? Let's hear about these very similar backgrounds. Yeah. Um, was one of the books written before the other one? Yeah. Was the other person aware of it? <laughs> and so, yeah, right. Did they read it before they started writing theirs? Did they get jealous about how much money the first person was making? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So then, uh, I mean, we we 
We're sympathetic to the argument, and we look down, and it says, which one of the following most accurately expresses the conclusion on the argument? We clearly know what the conclusion is. There was this sort of opinion of others in the first sentence, and then you had however, and when however comes after the opinion of other people, uh, when he said, which might lead one to suspect plagiarism, and then he goes against that by saying however, that's often the main conclusion. However is not a conclusion indicator, but like I said, after it, when it comes after the opinion of someone else, it often is. And then we had that word sense that came after that first clause in the second sentence. That's telling us that that's a premise. So we clearly knew that it was the conclusion. And now we just have to look for an answer choice that restates the first half of the second sentence. So just to re- go ahead and just restate, you, you gave like a lot of technicalities, but what was the point of this argument? The point here is that it is more likely that the similarity of themes and situations is merely coincidental. So yeah. these this was just a coincidence that these things are the same, if I were to restate that in my own words. Yeah. So I just wanted to explain why I knew that was the conclusion. I think that's that's an example of something where most people would know that's the conclusion from the the content. This is a very easy argument to understand. The content clearly supports that idea right there. But knowing that, however, when it comes after the opinion of someone else often introduces the main conclusion and that sense points forward to a premise and back to a conclusion is just like two more pieces of data that confirm and build confidence that we have found the main conclusion. And I think that's what speeds us through the test and maybe gives people even just a five-second pause, right? They're like, well, I think that's the main conclusion. And, and this, but if you know those words, in addition to the content, the content's way more important. But in addition to the content, it just solidifies your conviction. Yeah, I would have, I don't think I would have keyed in on the word however specifically, but I definitely would have thought about if you tell someone they're wrong, anytime you tell yeah. someone they are wrong, that's almost always the conclusion yeah. of an LSAT. And, and just to be clear, however, it does not introduce a conclusion all the time. It can be used in premises and so forth. But when it, yeah, like you said, sure. when you're contrasting with what someone else has said, that's almost always the main conclusion. So anyways, answer choice A says yeah. novel X and novel Y are both semi-autobiographical novels. And the two novels contain many very similar themes and situations. This is just like facts. This is not what the person was concluding. That was part of the argument. And this is a good illustration of why you have to make a prediction on a main conclusion question. You have to know what you're looking for on a main conclusion question. All the answer choices are going to just regurgitate different pieces and parts of the argument. And it'd be really easy if you if you had read the passage just a tiny bit too quickly, it'd be really easy to look at A and go, oh, well, that that was in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. But but that's not the point. The point was, was this plagiarism or was it coincidence? It was coincidence. And A doesn't address yep. coincidence at all. B, the fact that novel X and novel Y are both semi-autobiographical novels and contain many very similar themes and situations might lead one to suspect plagiarism on the part of one of the authors. That's the first sentence. That's what some people might think. It's not the main conclusion. No, because it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't say anything about, but this is wrong, but this is coincidence. 
Answer choice C, the author of novel X and the author of novel Y are from very similar backgrounds and have very, led very similar lives. Okay, again, this is a premise. It's not telling us the conclusion. Yep, A and B and C were all parts of the argument. Yep. Just not the right part. D, it is less likely that one of the authors of novel X and novel Y is guilty of plagiarism than that the similarity of the themes and the situations in the two novels is merely coincidental. This is exactly what we're looking for. It's worded a little differently. They said more likely, but now they're just saying it in a different way by using less likely. I would uh, keep this open. Yeah, we wanted coincidence is more likely Mm -hmm. than plagiarism. D gives us plagiarism is less likely than coincidence. Perfect. Same thing. And they're just trying to hide the answer, I think, a little bit by changing the wording. But the meaning is the same. E. Yep. If the authors of novel X and novel Y are from very... If. uh, (laughs) We could keep reading if we'd like to, but this is wrong. The conclusion was not conditional. There was never even any conditional anything in the facts at all. So how could... How could the conclusion of the argument be conditional? Yep. And so we're picking D? D, yeah. Okay. Should we check the answer key? <laughs> you can if you want. No. No. <laughs> I don't. I mean, how often do you check the answer? I check the answer key like, I don't know, very, pretty rarely, right? Like it, we, just, we just end up knowing what the answer is. Yeah. I mean, sometimes for hard questions, it's like, um pretty sure that's it but uh you know we should make sure so that we're not duped 95 percent of the time 99 percent of the time you should be able to just know what the answer is and that's that's kind of the point of blind review right that people should be able to just solve these questions and know what the answer is yeah and figure them out and just be certain about it and i think that's what people should tr- should strive to get to you know before like you know you missed this question you're going to go back and review it i think you should try to figure it out to the point where you're really pretty sure okay now you know i'm i've thought about it and boy this just has to be the answer right yeah and then look at the answer key Mm -hmm. and I, i think that's where real learning comes from because you know you at that point you actually figured it out you actually solved it and there's something about that that's going to make it stick in a way that it's not going to stick if you just too quickly look at the answer key. Oh, for sure. That that struggle is what's going to make it stick. And it reveals what you don't know, right? When right. you look up the answer and you're like, oh, D, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then I say, please explain it. Or you say, please explain it. And they just sort of start rambling. You're like, well, you thought you knew, but you didn't. And that sucks. Pretty common mistake, I think, that people look at the answer choice too quickly or the answer key too quickly. In class, sometimes I'll, you know, have the class not look at the answer key and do some discussing of the questions uh, yep. between between themselves. Um, and I'll, I'll I'll say, you know, don't cheat now, don't cheat yourself, don't look at the answer key. And I'll look around the room and I'll still see people peeking to the answer key. I wish I had like yeah. a ruler so I could walk around <laughs> and smack them on the hand if they start doing that. Because <laughs> it's like, you're only cheating yourself. I mean, I get it. It's human nature and you want to figure it out, but yeah, or you want, you want that satisfaction. But I think you need to get, you need to get more certain before you start looking at the answer key. Yeah. One side note on that. Yeah. If you're debating between two answer choices and in your mind, they both seem correct 
and they both seem to be saying the same thing. One easy way to, I don't know if it's easy necessarily, but one thing you can do before you look up the correct answer is just start going through each word. Just say, okay, this answer starts with psychological, and this answer also starts with psychological. Yeah. That cannot be the distinguishing factor. <laughs> right. Like, well, and I mean, maybe even before you get to that point, it's like, hey, if they really did say exactly the same thing. Then they're both wrong. Then they're both wrong. So yeah. you can't just be like, well, they're both right. I'm going to pick one of them. No, mm-hmm. you have to be one of them is if if one of them's right, only one of them is right. And the other one is wrong. So you, you got to figure out the difference. Yeah, I like that. So comparing those two to, to see what the differences are and then think about which one's right, and which one's wrong. Yeah. And then sometimes the answers use different words. But in my mind, I'm like, well, these two words are synonymous. Like one says key and the other says important. That doesn't matter. That's not a that's not a a logical difference so it's got to be somewhere else and then it's like you keep going and you say oh, right. maybe the verb is different maybe the and then at least you have some potential candidates so that when you do know the correct answer you can say oh it might be that phrase because this test is all about wording and words yeah 13 you want to read it sure a therapist says Cognitive psychotherapy focuses on changing a patient's conscious beliefs. Thus, cognitive psychotherapy is likely to be more effective at helping patients overcome psychological problems than are forms of psychotherapy that focus on changing unconscious beliefs and desires. I'm, I'm, I kind of want to pause right there. Yep. You know, that seems to be the conclusion of their argument. There was a keyword that said thus. Yep. It's also a bold claim. You know, they told me what cognitive psychotherapy does. Mm-hmm. Changes a patient's conscious beliefs. And then they say, because of that, it's more likely to be effective. Or it's likely to be more effective. Same difference, I guess. Mm-hmm. Than our other types of psychotherapy that focus on changing unconscious beliefs. I'm like, well, wait, how, why, how do you know that? Yeah. Why is, why does affecting conscious beliefs have more of an impact than affecting unconscious ones? In fact, I could totally see an argument for the reverse, right? Like 90% of our life is dictated by our unconscious beliefs and desires that we are not aware of. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that sort of engagement, by the way, uh, after I read the first sentence and it said cognitive, I mean, you were reading it and I was listening, but it says cognitive psychotherapy focuses on changing a person, patient's conscious beliefs. That word conscious really stuck out to me. I'm like, in contrast to yeah. unconscious beliefs, like if you're not aware of that, then you're just kind of like reading. You're just like, okay, change their beliefs, hmm, you know? Like, why did they say conscious? I think you should be aware of the difference between the two, even after the first sentence. Yeah, people need to pump the brakes a little bit. I think they, people are surprised that we would take, you know, that much time to really under, to really understand this, but we need to understand it. We need to go through it once, ideally, and we need to understand it. So if we're going to take it in bites, that helps us to understand as we go, Maybe when we get down to the end, we won't need to read it again. Yeah, and the other thing is this isn't like, I mean, the more you do this, it doesn't actually take that long. I mean, we're talking like, 
I don't. It could be a second or right. two. It's just that pause. People right. don't take that pause. They're just like reading. Well, no, because they're so bound up in the time aspect, right? They're just yep. like the clock is ticking. Every second counts. It, no, it doesn't. <laughs> every second does not count. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you need to. You can't afford not to take that one second to make sure you're paying attention and you you really know exactly what they're talking about. Yep. This isn't that hard, but it's a very long se- this this is only two sentences here and mm-hmm. it's like nine lines. Yep. And the second sentence is like seven lines by itself. So yeah, it, it's there's a lot going on here. We haven't even gotten to the last clause, but the middle of this argument is the conclusion. Cognitive mm-hmm. psychotherapy is likely to be more effective than uh, other forms th- that don't change conscious beliefs and desires, that change unconscious beliefs and desires. Yep. Those aren't going to be as effective. Okay, now, why? And they're going to tell us why because they use the word sense here. That's going to indicate a reason. And the reason is only conscious beliefs are under the patient's direct conscious control. What and the I, heck? Yeah, I'm literally scratching my head. I'm I'm like, hmm, what are you saying? So I think I might rearrange the argument here a little bit. Yep. Okay. There's a definition, cognitive psychotherapy focuses on changing a patient's conscious beliefs. Then we have a premise that says only conscious beliefs are under the patient's direct conscious control. Sure. Which makes sense. Yeah, it does. It totally makes sense. It's almost kind of obvious. But if we combine those two things together, we get cognitive psychotherapy is focusing on conscious beliefs, and only conscious beliefs are under a patient's direct conscious control. Oh, so cognitive psychotherapy is focusing on things that are under the patient's direct conscious control. Yeah. Right? That's combining mm-hmm. the two premises of the argument. Mm-hmm. Cognitive psychotherapy focuses on things that are under the patient's direct conscious control. Okay. Therefore, cognitive psychotherapy is likely to be more effective. So, <laughs> I mean, even before you say therefore, it's just sort of like therefore what, and you can really almost conclude nothing on the basis of those facts. Yeah, like, I was just re I was regurgitating their conclusion, but there's still a big gap there. Yeah, right. And I think what I'm doing is I'm sort of rearranging it, and then I'm boiling it down to to its basic just basic core elements. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Cognitive psychotherapy focuses on conscious stuff. Only conscious beliefs and whatever, that's on, that's the things that we can actually consciously control. Therefore, it's more effective. And now I can see this big missing piece. Yep. I think I'm going to predict the answer here. Oh, I would for sure. Yeah. I mean, right. this person, I'm assuming you're thinking that this person is thinking that if you have direct conscious control over something, then you can have more of an effect. What was it? More, they're more effective at people overcoming problems. So direct conscious control is the more effective way of solving problems. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Direct conscious control is more effective. Mm-hmm. That's the missing piece of this argument. And, and you know, it, it, I think people get done, people read the argument and they get to the end of it and they go, well, that didn't make any sense. Okay, I'm going to just look at the answer choices. Yeah, see which one seems to kind of fit. And instead, they need to make sure that they are playing the right, they have to, pl- we have to play the game here, right? The game is they give you a shitty argument and you have to understand it even if it's shitty. Mm-hmm. So I have rearranged the therapist's shitty argument. It still is shitty. But specifically, it's shitty because it's missing this piece that says if we can direct, if things are under our direct conscious control, then that's going to be more effective. At solving these problems. At solving our problems. So that's the missing piece. And then with that missing piece in mind, now I read the question and it says, which one of the following, if true, would most strengthen the therapist's argument? You want to make a prediction here? Yeah, so my prediction would be if something – my prediction is almost always an if-then statement. It, that doesn't mean that the correct answer will be an if-then statement, but it's just an easy way to connect these ideas. Right. If something is under your direct conscious control or under the patient's direct conscious control uh, and you can change that, then, I mean, the language would be something along the lines that's more effective at solving problems. Something like that. I'm gonna. Pre- my prediction would be that those two ideas are connected, and I suspect that the language would be strong. That, that this wouldn't say sometimes or, you know, right. whatever. The best possible strengthener would be a sufficient assumption of the argument. Yep. So I think I would be predicting this in the form of a sufficient assumption. I would. I would have said something like, if it's under your direct conscious control, then it's always more effective at at uh, solving your problems. Sure, sure. Or we can only ever solve problems that are under our direct conscious control. Exactly. Super super strong language and direct. And they would build the bridge between the premise and the conclusion and they would make it locked down so that the argument has to win. Yeah. That's a sufficient assumption. And a sufficient assumption is the best possible strengthener. So a lot of times on a strengthen question, I'm going to predict that sufficient assumption. Hopefully, I'll find that. If I don't, then I have to start thinking about, well, what's the next best thing? Yep. Which may just be a watered down version of that prediction or (laughs) sometimes something that you hadn't thought about, but you're like, well, yeah, that would help. And none of the other answers do anything. So we're going to have to go with that. Right. You end up sometimes picking a necessary assumption of the argument, right? Something that defends the argument against attack, mm-hmm. potentially. Mm-hmm. But that wouldn't be my first choice here. I, I want to make my argument win. So I'm looking for that sufficient assumption. And then if I don't find it, then I'll think about, well, what's the next best thing that helps this argument as much as possible? And, and sometimes that's by defending it against an attack. All right. A. Psychological problems are frequently caused by unconscious beliefs that could be changed with the aid of psychotherapy. Uh, I don't see how that talks about anything that we jumped with. It's on target, I think, except doesn't it weaken the argument? Well, it's focusing on unconscious beliefs. So it weakens the argument. Yeah. By saying, hey, you psychological problems are frequently caused by unconscious beliefs. That yeah. could be changed with the aid of psychotherapy. I mean, if anything, I would say A is a weakener. Yeah. And we were looking for a strengthener. 
Good. B, it is difficult for any form of psychotherapy to be effective without focusing on mental states that are under the patient's direct conscious control. That's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Why, how, why, why do you like that? First of all, it's telling us that it's not saying you can't be effective, but I'm going to simplify it a little bit and say it's almost saying you can't be effective unless you focus on the patient's direct conscious control. So it's saying that this direct conscious control thing is a necessary element to being effective, almost. Yeah, it only says it is difficult. It would be better if it said impossible, right? Yep. yep. If you change difficult to impossible, I think it becomes a sufficient assumption. Yep. And that's probably why this is a strengthening question. Yeah, although sometimes you do find the sufficient assumption as a strengthener, right? On sure. A, on an easier question. But yep. here it's getting a little bit gray. Uh, B does not prove the conclusion of the argument to be correct, but B is an awful good strengthener, and it's very close to a sufficient assumption. I would be almost guaranteeing that that's going to be the answer. Yeah. C says, cognitive psychotherapy is the only form of psychotherapy that focuses primarily on changing the patient's conscious beliefs. So what? Is that more effective or less effective? Correct. D, no form of psychotherapy that focuses on changing the patient's unconscious beliefs and desires can be effective unless it also helps change beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control. Ooh. What do you think about that? Um, it seems overcomplicated. I would prefer an answer that said psychotherapy that focuses on changing the patient's unconscious beliefs can't be effective, period. Yep. It says it can't be effective unless it also helps change beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control. And I don't think that... I think that that is actually still a possibility here. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I don't think that that's a strengthener. Hmm. Unless is like an escape hatch. Yeah. So the way unless works is it means if not. And it's basically like if the escape hatch is closed, then we're screwed, right? We're going to mm -hmm. die mm -hmm. unless the escape hatch. Yeah. So if the escape hatch is closed, then we're screwed. But here, this escape hatch unless it also helps change beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control, well, I think that's possible according to the given facts. Mm -hmm. And because I guess we didn't, and we didn't even like look at this, but the argument is talking about focus. And just because you focus on conscious or focus on unconscious doesn't mean that you're not also helping to change the other one. Sure. Yeah. That's the technical reason, I think, why D is not, not the answer. D's, D's actually kind of close. Yeah. Anything else you want to add about that? Uh, I think going through the test quickly, I'd probably keep it open. Oh. Just okay. because I'd be moving. Right? I feel, well, I feel like through the answers, I'd be moving faster and just saying, okay, not A, B, not C, maybe D. E, and then just think about E, and then yeah. go back and think about it in the way that you're just talking about it. Okay. Um, so anyway, Ben would have left B and D 
open and then gone back and eliminated D for the reasons that we just talked about. I think I would have probably eliminated it on the spot for those okay. reasons. Yeah. E, all of a patient's conscious beliefs are under the patient's conscious control, but other psychological states cannot be controlled effectively without the aid of psychotherapy. <laughs> uh, okay. But in that case, even if that's true, yeah, you're in psychotherapy, it's focusing on your unconscious beliefs, then maybe you can change those unconscious beliefs. Sure. So I just don't see how E says focusing on conscious beliefs is more effective. If you were tempted by this answer, maybe you equated psychotherapy with cognitive psychotherapy or something. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So E is out. And then it, in my case, it'd just be down to B and D. B definitely seems good. And like you said, D is talking about focusing on changing the patient's un conscious beliefs and so okay that can't be effective right unless it does this other thing in which case it could all of a sudden become effective right and it can still do that other thing yeah we don't know that forms of psychotherapy that focus on unconscious beliefs can also as far as we know change some of your uh, conscious beliefs Yep. And that's why D is, is wrong. You know, can I tell you, we talk about this a lot. We have five ways of getting there, right? We have 10 ways of getting there. Yeah. One of the ways that I would have gotten there is that I really liked B. Straightforwardly, B matches my prediction. I can see very clearly how B is the right answer. D, look how long it is. Look how complicated it is. And... That doesn't mean it's wrong, but you do have to understand it fully before you can vouch for it as being right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So when I read an answer like D, I'm I'm really pretty skeptical of it. The test is easy. I've already got an answer that I really like. Now I have some complicated bullshit that you know may or may not be on target. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying I wouldn't have taken the time to figure it out but i am saying i would have been even more skeptical than usual because i'm just not trying to help these answer choices yeah you know i'm trying to eliminate them and so when it's like this big long five lines with an unless in it i don't know i I, unless i didn't find anything else I, i can't imagine that i would spend a whole hell of a lot of time to just get rid of d and pick the straightforward answer the reason I think I was inclined to keep it open was because of its strength, right? I mean, it ultimately has this escape hatch, as you're talking about with right. unless, and that's that, that's pretty common. And then it's just like all the water goes out and there, there's no more strength there. But because it says no form, can be effective, I was like, oh. If it put a period there, right? Yeah. If there was a period after effective, then that would be the answer because it would be a sufficient assumption. It would just be like, hey, if you focus on unconscious beliefs, you're not effective. But it doesn't do that. It says unless you also do this other thing. But I guess so the the point there being is that I would just want to make sure that that unless uh, clause hadn't been like shut down, right? Because if you you can't be in the exception, if, if, for example, what would it be like? Things that focus on changing a, a patient's conscious beliefs are the only way 
to that are I don't know to change beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control. Like if you if you can deny the exception, then you're back into the rule. Yeah. And that escape hatch didn't work. Right. In which case, then the strong language would make D better than B because D, B just said difficult, like yes. we were talking about. If that escape hatch were closed, but we don't know what that escape hatch is, right? Here we read that escape hatch and we go, oh, unless it also helps change beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control, which could be the case. We just don't know. So that escape hatch is still open. So D is not the answer. The escape hatch also could have been, you know, it wouldn't be this extreme, but it could have been like, unless water is composed of hydrogen and oxygen. Yeah. Right. Which is just like, no, that's a fact. Wide open escape then then that d would have no effect yeah yeah right especially since you don't know anything about it in the context of this question right yeah good cool okay so uh we did we make it through all five yeah we did and we are picking b for number 13 cool awesome well what do you think wrap it up there yeah i think we should so Thank you, everybody, for listening. As always, you can always email us your questions at help at thinkinglsat.com or tweet us at thinkinglsat uh, or or Nathan at nfox. Is that right? Yeah, tweet at nfox. Ben, you actually did a tweet last week. What was up with that? I don't know. I, I was uh, clearing out my inbox because I do get, like, I guess I get an email notification when some tweet is related to me, which is very rare, of course. And for some reason, I felt compelled to respond. I think it was, uh, I don't remember her name, but she was taking the test. So I think, you know, the the impending test made me feel compelled to say something about whatever she was saying. I'm sorry, I can't remember now. But that was my tweet, and I promise to do it again in the next six months. Cool. Uh, check out Ben's website, strategyprep.com, if you want to learn about all of Ben's uh, offerings, an online class and live classes in Washington, D.C., and one-on-one private tutoring around the world, right, Ben, on Skype? Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, For Same sure. here, my website, foxlsat.com. I've got all the same stuff. I've also got a whole bunch of uh, LSAT prep books, which are linked through my site, but they're all available on Amazon. Yeah, I think that's about it. Send us your emails and uh, tell a friend. Don't forget to hit the uh, five stars on iTunes if you get a moment. Uh, write us a review on iTunes. We uh, we don't have a marketing budget for the show, so we uh, depend on you to get the word out there. Yeah. Thank awesome. you. Yeah, mm-hmm. thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.